turn with me to Psalm 123. Psalm 123, as we continue our study of the Psalms of Ascent this summer, we will see a drastic change in Psalm 123 from what we read last week. Last week was triumphant uh, and peace uh, and the glory of Jerusalem, and this week it is scorn and contempt. There have been many attempts to try and uh, and give us a structure and understanding for how these 15 psalms are laid out, and, and whether it was intentional or whether it was uh, simply the way the, the Holy Spirit uh, added these together and, and arranged them in Scripture, you may notice as you go through the Psalms of Ascent uh, that every third psalm goes back to the dregs of our human condition. Psalm 121 began uh, with those who uh, are for war when we are for peace. Psalm 123 will deal with scorn and contempt. Psalm 126 will cry out to the Lord to again restore the fortunes uh, of his people because we go out weeping. And you can continue looking. Every third psalm seems to go again to the, the depth of our experience as we walk together with the Lord. And then there is this, uh, this pattern of journeying with the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord. That's what we'll see over and over again in groups of three as we go throughout these passages. But today, again, a, a little bit more of a somber note. God's people waiting and looking and longing for the Lord and for his protection. So we're going to read together Psalm 123 as we have been. I'd ask that you would stand together with me as we give attention to the reading of God's word. Before we read this, please join me again in prayer. O oh, gracious Lord, our God, we thank you that you have sent your living word, not only that we may hear it, but that you may cut us to the heart and show us our need for Christ. And so, O oh Lord, we pray that you would. We pray that you would move in us as we read this word, cause us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, that we may know and follow the way of truth in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Psalm 123. This is a song of ascent. To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. We have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. You may be seated. You probably saw the news story that on June 7th, uh, English protesters toppled the statue of a man by the name of Edward Colston. They tore down this bronze statue, took him from where he had been resting for who knows how long, and dumped his likeness in the Bristol Harbor. And they attacked this statue, or they targeted this statue, specifically because of Colston's role in the transatlantic slave trade of the 17th century. That was how he made his fortune, overseeing, some estimate, uh, upwards of 100,000 slaves from Africa to the New World. You've also heard similar news stories in our own country. Just in the state of Virginia, just 
in the last six weeks. Thirteen Confederate monuments have either been ripped down by protesters or they've been slated for removal by local officials. Now, there are plenty of places that you can go and receive a political commentary on all of these things, and that is not my point uh, in bringing up these stories. My point is not to give you my, my personal opinion about what we ought to think about statues. My point uh, is to point out, if you haven't noticed already, that to the contemporary mind, there are few evils more heinous than the sin of slavery. The very idea of it uh, is so offensive that now uh, references in, in any sphere of life, references to slavery are being scrubbed. Maybe you've heard of the petitions going around the tech companies, uh, petitioning them, asking them, demanding of them that they stop using terms like master and slave uh, to describe the interaction between one computing device and another. Perhaps you've seen that the Houston Association of Realtors has updated its listing database to rename all master bedrooms as primary bedrooms. We live in a context where the very idea of servitude activates our societal gag reflex, for better or for worse. Slavery in our age is an unthinkable abomination. It is, to the modern mind, an institution of evil, and for good reason freighted with centuries of oppression and abuse. It is distasteful. It is an abomination. And yet, as we open the pages of Scripture, we find that there is a servitude, there is a slavery, if we can even call it that, which is life-giving. It's redemptive. There is a willing service to a loving master, and it is what Romans chapter 6 calls the slavery to righteousness that accompanies freedom from sin. And throughout the history of God's people, his people seem to have found their highest dignity in being known as God's servants, known as his slaves. You see it scattered throughout the Old and the New Testaments. It's not isolated in one particular place. Men and women are pleased to be known and, and to bow before the God of heaven and to be known in the position of a slave. It happens among God's people even when God's word would make more of us than slaves and servants. What does God's word call us? It calls us children of God, heirs according to his promise, sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that we are members together of the very body of Christ. In the upper room, Jesus told his disciples, no longer do I consider you slaves, but I call you my friends. And yet among his friends in the New Testament, we find that Peter and Paul and James and Jude and John, in each of their epistles, consistently refer to themselves as douloi, slaves, that is, servants. Servants of Christ for the sake of his elect. It seems to be the unstoppable impulse of the believing heart that we are content to be found in the position of God's servants. Content to be slaves who look to him and wait for him and cry to him. Content to find that as we serve the Lord, he draws us near to his majesty and to his mercy. Tonight in this psalm, the Holy Spirit is showing us the servant's approach to our God. Showing us how God's people wait for the mercy of their master. 
in the servant's approach begins whenever God's servants look to his throne. This is our first point, that God's servants look to his throne. The psalm begins with familiar language. In fact, it, it sounds almost identical to Psalm 121, where the psalmist said there that he, he lifted his eyes to the hills around Jerusalem. There are uplifted eyes here as well, but in, in Psalm 121, the, the uplifted eyes there were the beginning of a thought experiment. What do I think? Whence comes my help? Should I, should I fear the rocks and the robbers? Should I go up and, and worship at the pagan places for some more ounce of security? There's this thought experiment. What do I think about what the Lord is doing and where my help comes from? And sometimes, you know, sometimes that inner dialogue is helpful for God's people. Sometimes in our going to God, we need to remind ourselves of all the insufficient answers to our spiritual problems. Sometimes that's helpful. Other times we need the direct answer of Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes. Not to the hills. Not to the gods with a lowercase g. To you I lift up my eyes, you who are enthroned in heaven. That's how servants approach their master. It's almost instinctive. It's, it's almost automatic. It's almost like the child who comes running into the house and she's screaming, Mommy, Mommy, and Dads, what do you do? You try to reason with her. You try to get the information. What happened? Why are you crying? What's wrong? What's going on? And, and she's unconsolable. Mommy, Mommy, she just keeps going. And it's not until she's safe in Mommy's arm that she finally unburdens herself and tells you, this is how I fell. This is where I got hurt. This is what happened. And this is what we find in this psalm. It begins with this cry, Master, Master, and it's actually not until verses 3 and 4, not until the psalmist knows that he's safe in the gaze of his God that we find out why is it that he's crying out and why is it that he's looking up. It's instinctive. It's, it's automatic. The psalmist looks up. That's what servants do. That's how you can see the heart of God's servants. Almost before they've processed the danger that they're facing, their eyes are turning up to see God's heavenly throne. This is the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. It is this upward glance, this prayer that begins with humility. Humility enough to recognize that God stands above us. That he reigns over us. That our lives are in his hands. That his, his wisdom of our need is greater by far than that sudden knee-jerk sense of personal crisis that we feel that drives us to him in the first place. And so scripture over and over again speaks of God's throne in the heavens. And it's speaking to us of humility. You see for millennia of earthbound uh, believers, earthbound uh, humans. Now I can get in a plane if I wanted to travel in an overcrowded plane full of people with face masks. I could get in a plane and I've done so and I've taken a, a, a picture out the window so I could show my children what the top of the clouds looks like. This is a novelty, you understand. Uh, this is something that didn't happen for most people in most of history, and so the heavens represent the unattainable. It's not just the realm where, where birds inhabit. It is, it is that separation between what is below and what is above. It is this upward look. It's not about a location, but it's about about what it represents. 
German Titov was a cosmonaut in the 1960s. In fact, Titov was the second person ever to orbit the Earth. And in an interview in 1962, Titov was famously asked whether space travel had had a religious effect on his life. And he answered, sometimes people are saying that God is out there. And I was looking around attentively all day, but I didn't find anybody there. I saw neither angels nor God. Well, that's the wrong idea, actually. This psalm, excuse me, excuse me. Uh, this psalm isn't about finding uh, God's street address as though it were somewhere just beyond the stratosphere. Which is why when John Glenn heard this quote, he responded by saying that his God is not so small that he'd expect to see him in space. Exactly. Solomon's prayer was right. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. And yet the closest gesture we get to an approach to God is an upward glance. It's what all those buttresses and all those arches and all that upward architecture of all the cathedrals and all the Christian world was all about. It was about drawing our eyes up, reminding us that God is above us, up to God's throne like a servant to the Lord, like a slave to the master. Because when we look up to God, we look to the one who is king. Not just over physical, but over spiritual creation. The God who reigns where humanity can neither, neither see, nor travel, nor penetrate. We look up to the God who is above us in every conceivable sense of the word. And yet we look up to the God whose throne reaches down into our lives and into our struggles. So we need to train our eyes, brothers and sisters. Spurgeon says that our eyes will not go upward to the Lord of their own initiative. They incline to look downward or inward or anywhere else. So he says we must use our eyes with resolution, with resolve. We must be resolved like servants to look to God's throne. Not to allow our eyes to wander downward to, to any lesser savior or king or lesser master. This is what God's servants do. We look to his throne. Secondly, God's servants wait for his hand. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is the, the driving image uh, in this psalm. It's not just this portrait of, of uh, servants who are humble. It's a picture of servants who are patient. They're patient enough to wait upon the God they know they can trust. And so verse 2, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of maidservants to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Do you hear that patience? We look and we keep looking and we look while we wait and we'll keep on waiting and we'll be patient with the Lord. This actually is the subtle distinction between thinking of ourselves only as God's children and thinking of ourselves also as God's servants. You may be aware that children are notoriously impatient people. I have none of my own children in mind, of course. But uh, children are impatient. Adulthood doesn't always cure us of this, but at least most adults learn to feign patience when we know it's appropriate. We know how to cross our hands and wait and 
and just see what will happen. And children don't do that. And of course, you, you don't have to teach a child how to be impatient. My parents never took me to the side and said, you know, this is how you pester us for every little thing that you think you want. Make sure that you interrupt adult conversations at any moment because you've got this thought that's running through your head. You don't have to teach a child to do that because it comes naturally to them. They're naturally impatient. Actually, one of the blessings of being a child of God is that we know that he, he puts up with our impatience. And it's okay. We know that sometimes we have urgent prayers, urgent needs, urgent thoughts that we have to go to the Lord and, and we know that our Father is ready to listen to our prayers and our fears any hour of the day or night. It's a blessing that we can go to God with urgency, with prayers that are only ever articulate as a few words. Help me, Lord. Have mercy, O Lord, like we see here at the end of the psalm. There are times that we have to run to him and unburden our hearts and as children in Christ, we know there's nothing wrong with those prayers. But to that legitimate childlike urgency, servanthood adds another dimension. It adds patience, and it adds, it adds stillness, and it adds reliance. We look to the Lord, and we wait upon the Lord, says our poet. We wait upon the Lord as we watch for his hand. We wait upon the Lord and we keep on working while we're waiting because that's what servants are meant for. This servitude is not like we might imagine on Downton Abbey where if a, a maid becomes disgruntled, if she's been working in the manor too long and she no longer feels like she'd like to carry the tea trays every time the bell jingles in the servant's kitchen, maybe she'll just go out and find something else to do with her life. This is not that kind of servitude. Servants in the ancient world didn't serve at their own discretion. They served at the discretion of their master or their mistress. They stood to serve. They waited to serve until the master gave the signal. They waited to fill the glasses until the maid motioned with her hand. They served not for themselves, not to their own needs, not to their own desires. They served to cater to the Lord of the house. And actually Jesus told a parable uh, to that effect in Luke chapter 7. Jesus said, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or, or keeping sheep, will you say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and, and serve me? Serve me while I, thank you. Man, that was good timing. Serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Thank you, John. A minister and a servant for sure. Well, folks, that's how it is with servants of the Lord. Day by day, our God calls us to action. Day by day, he has good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And by the gesture of his hand of providence, he pulls us into circumstances and, and conversations where we have to do his will and not our own, where we are stretched beyond our capacity and sometimes we might be weary and yet by the hand of his word and the hand of his spirit, he continues showing us what we ought to do to serve him. He continues gesturing, here are the sins that you've got to mortify. Here are the relationships that you've got to reconcile. Here are the fellow servants that you've got to encourage, and I'm putting them in your life. I'm calling you to action. I'm giving you something to do. 
and it's not our discretion, and we keep working, and we keep waiting while the Lord is gesturing, and we, we know, because we trust our master, that we can wait upon his hand of direction. That's what we've learned from our Savior, isn't it? We've learned to pray that prayer with Christ, the great servant, our great substitute, to say, not my will, but yours be done. I may be weary right now. I may not want what's in front of me, but I can trust you, and I can wait upon you. I can wait for God's hand of direction. And because we trust our master, we can also wait for his hand of protection. Notice that there is an object, excuse me, there's an object in view in verse 2. We continue serving while we wait. Uh, We're waiting, though, for something. We're waiting for mercy. Our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. This is what the psalmist, this is what the servant of the Lord expects from God, and this is perhaps our biggest indicator that service to the Lord, slavery to God, is not like the horror stories we've heard, and rightly so, in antebellum America. This is nothing like the subjugation of one ethnicity over against another. The Lord does not enlist us as servants to break our backs with labor. He enlists us as servants to bring us into his household and under his arm of protection. In the ancient world, one of the very many things that slaves and servants could not do is that slaves and servants could not protect themselves. It was illegal in Rome, yes, centuries after this psalm was written, but it was illegal in Rome for a slave to carry a sword. It was not their prerogative to defend themselves. They had to depend upon their master to care for them, to come to their aid, to bring them vindication against their enemy. So when the psalmist says that we look to our God like a slave to its master, it means that we serve a Lord who governs and protects and provides for our needs. It means that while we serve him, our well-being is his responsibility and not ours. We do things to care for ourselves. We we have hygiene and we have uh, things that we do and and we we pursue uh, health and and we pursue spiritual health. But in, in the long run, the things that we can't control, the enemies of our body, the viruses, the, the whatever it is, the, the spiritual viruses of sin and temptation. We leave ourselves in the hand of God and we entrust ourselves to his protection. And hasn't your walk with God been better off because that's true? Aren't you glad that God has not answered every single one of your impetuous childish prayers when and how you wanted them to be answered? Sometimes he says, wait, I'll take care of this. It might not be what you're thinking. It might not be what you want, but I've got this covered. I've got you covered. I will take care of you. Your well-being is my prerogative, and I will protect you. That's what this is saying. We will look to the hand of the Lord till he has mercy, but we'll continue looking. And haven't you found that to be true? Haven't your years with Christ proven time and again that you are able as a servant to busy yourself with serving him and you can let him worry about your spiritual safety? Hasn't God's compassion taught you that you can wait for your master's hand? 
servants do. We wait for his hand. We look to his throne. Thirdly and finally, we pray for his mercy. Verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. And here's the situation, the need that turned servant eyes upward in the first place. It is the need for protection. It is the need for mercy. Mercy from the Lord who who watches over his little ones and and brings vindication to his slandered servants. This is a pretty short psalm. We're not given much context, and we don't know the specifics of all of this. We don't know exactly what the slander was. We can only make guesses when in Israel's history this might have been written, how it was inspired. Many scholars think, they conjecture, they guess, uh, that perhaps this was written by Nehemiah. Maybe this, this shows the spirit of those people as they came back into the promised land and they were, uh, they were attacked, they were slandered by Tobiah and Sanballat. Maybe this represents the spiritual angst of those who were rebuilding the walls of Zion. Maybe. Others think maybe it was written by Hezekiah. Perhaps this prayer mirrors the one that he prayed when the Assyrian envoys, the Rabshakeh, stood outside the gates of Jerusalem and began to tell the people and threaten them that they were going to besiege the city until starvation drove them mad. And Isaiah chapter 37, verse 14 tells us, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Sounds familiar to the psalm. So maybe it was Hezekiah, maybe it was Nehemiah, maybe it was any one of God's faithful servants down throughout the ages, any time that God's people were facing ridicule and threat and oppression. The truth is, we don't know the specific scorn that inspired this song, but we do know the history of God's people. And we know it well enough to know that this psalm could fit any one of a few hundred thousand points in the history of the church. William Plummer wrote that scorn and contempt have been and are and are likely to be the lot of God's people in the world. It's true. It's a lot of God's people today in many places, in places like Bhutan, in places like Eritrea, in places like the prison camps outside Pyongyang. And what does this song give us? It gives us uh, words to pray on their behalf. It gives a voice to the voices that the world doesn't want to listen to. It gives words to pray. It also gives us words to pray when we find ourselves, as, uh, as Alec Matir said, at the end of our tether. That's how he described this psalm. That's the situation here. And you know exactly what he means. That's the exhaustion of, of living in a world that is hostile toward Christ and toward those who take his gospel seriously. And you know what it's like to be at the end of your tether. You know what it's like to be ridiculed at school or, or at work because of your faith in Jesus. You know what it is to have family members who think you're quaint and old-fashioned and, 
and probably more than a little bit silly because of all of your talk about sin and forgiveness and, and the hope of heaven and all of these things that the world wants nothing to do with. You know what it is to be at the end of your tether and to wonder if walking with Christ is really worth the aggravation that it causes you in your everyday life. If you have been there, if you've been there, or if you know what God's church faces in the world, what's the prayer that we pray to our master? Have mercy, O Lord. Have mercy. Have mercy because we have had it up to our eyeballs with the blasphemies of those who hate Christ and his church. Have mercy, O Lord, because we depend upon you to deliver your servants from shame. Have mercy, O Lord, because we know that our lives are in your hands and our souls are in your keeping. Have mercy, O Lord, we pray. That's a prayer that God's people have been praying for a few thousand years of faith. It's a prayer that we learn from the psalmist. It's a prayer that we learn from our Savior. Isn't that the essence of the gospel? That Jesus hung on that Roman cross surrounded by scorners like a pack of wolves, he hung there, receiving the ridicule, receiving the contempt of people who were spiritually proud and comfortable. He hung there in our place where we deserve scorn. He hung in our place where we deserve judgment. He hung there willing to execute the will of the Father even though it was uncomfortable and he was weary. And as he hung in our place, he prayed for mercy not for himself. He prayed for mercy for his people. Forgive them, Father. Have mercy, O Lord. Turn away your wrath and, and enfold them into your family. That's the prayer of the one that Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord. And it's interesting that this psalm, like Psalm 120, doesn't end with a resolution. It's a prayer, it's a, it's a lament almost, but it doesn't have an answer. We, we can conjecture perhaps how the Lord might have answered his people here. We can almost think of the people, if these are the, the Psalms of Ascent and the people are singing them up on the way to Jerusalem, maybe they're, they're singing it now as they've gathered into the temple and they're standing in the courtyard as far as they could go and they're surrounding uh, the, the, the altar and, and their prayer is resounding as they're singing it together. Have mercy, O Lord, have mercy, O Lord. And the sound of their prayer is reaching beyond the holy place and into the holy of holies and there where the Lord has promised to meet his people. And we can guess how the Lord would answer, but we don't actually know. It's just a conjecture. But we know when Jesus prayed that prayer how the Lord answered, don't we? The Father shattered the rocks and he split the curtain and he opened the way into the Holy of Holies. He made straight the path for God's servants to come before the mercy seat. But God has promised to meet his people. In fact, that's what the New Testament calls Christ, the mercy seat. The nexus, the point of connection between the God who is enthroned above the heavens and we who live down here below. And we look up to him and in Christ he gives us a way and he gives us confidence to come to his throne of grace that we may receive mercy to help in our time of need. And so we come to him as servants. We come to him through our servants. 
That's what being a servant of God is all about, actually. It's about looking to his throne. It's about praying for his mercy. It's about waiting for his hand. Would you join together with me in prayer? O Lord, our God, have mercy, we pray. Thank you for Christ, our Savior, whom you gave to be a propitiation for your children. We should be not only servants, but friends, members together. Help us, O Lord, to rejoice in Christ, who is our King, who is a great high priest who gave himself for us. Help us, O Lord, to know your servant and to be made like him ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, hear God's good word for you, his benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the, normally the time when I would make announcements, but I don't have any. So unless there are any, I would simply remind you of the offering box on your way out uh, and remind you to wear your masks uh, and socially distance outside. So uh, have a wonderful Sunday. Good to see all of you today.